Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm afraid of catching these feelings. Makes me want to run. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Run by Lisa Gain and the Rusty Silo. Lisa is our featured Ohio musical artist tonight, so hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you more about her and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. Well, there are few things in Northeast Ohio better known throughout the world than the Cleveland Clinic. Ah, for sure. I mean, people come all the way from around the world. The king of Saudi Arabia came to Cleveland Clinic. Oh, yeah. And there's, it's expanding. It's getting huge. The Akron General has turned into a Cleveland Clinic. Yeah, and that hospital means something to you. Yes, yes. Saved my wife's life this summer. Absolutely. she was in good hands. But I'll bet most people in Northeast Ohio have either forgotten or never knew that in its early years, the clinic had a disaster that ended 123 lives, including the life of one of its founders. And it wasn't from the fire that was the root cause of this tragedy but rather the fumes from a room full of burning x-rays that brought wholesale death to the facility. I've never heard of this one. I hadn't either before now. I found out about it from a YouTube channel that does these documentaries on disastrous events around the country called Fascinating Horror. And the video they did on this one, it was the first I'd heard of it. And being an Ohio story with some mystery to it, of course we're going to cover it. Of course. The Cleveland Clinic was established in 1921 when four Cleveland surgeons got together to create a revolutionary nonprofit. Their very first facility was a four-store outpatient building made of white stone at the corner of East 93rd and Euclid Avenue. They grew so fast, they started purchasing homes nearby to turn into treatment facilities and administrative offices. 
then added a 184-bed hospital just three years later. The medical staff was practicing a wide range of specialties, and their mission not only included care, but education. They quickly added a facility dedicated to research. By 1929, when our story takes place, the staff was already being recognized as pioneers, with some physicians there gaining national recognition for their advances to science. And the clinic had grown into a multi-building campus. But the tragedy about to unfold happened in that very first building, the four-story Whitestone Outpatient Center at East 93rd in Euclid. It was May 15th, a Wednesday, a typical busy day at the clinic, It's been estimated that about 225 people were in the building that morning when a steam fitter named Buffery Boggs arrived for a routine repair job involving a leaky steam pipe. The troublesome pipe was in the basement in a storage room that was used for holding the hospital's huge supply of x-ray film. By some estimates, there were 85,000 x-ray plates in storage a number that was growing by 200 to 400 new plates every day. Boggs was working on the pipe about 10 feet above a stack of plates. He stripped the pipe of insulation, found the pipe too hot to work on, and left for about a half hour. When he returned, he saw yellowish gas filling the basement. He yelled for a fire extinguisher, then ran. Just before 11.30 a.m., the building was rocked by two violent explosions, breaking windows and shaking loose plaster and ceiling tiles. But the Big Bang isn't what people needed to fear. It was the invisible monster that the explosion unleashed. A yellowish-brown smoke began pouring out of ducts in nearly every room of the hospital, and wound its way up the staircases between each floor. There was no escape for most people inside. The cloud brought imminent death and only needed 60 seconds to do its work. Some people dropped where they were, having no idea what it was that had just taken their life. Others might have been aware enough to take a step or two before succumbing to the fumes mid-stride. Those who realized the orange fog brought death filled the building with screams and they scrambled to find ways off the upper floors. It was the second explosion that shattered the skylight and the deadly vapors escaped into the midday air. Some pedestrians on the sidewalk fell unconscious. Many rescuers raced to the building to offer help, a butcher, two sign painters, a car salesman. They were among those helping to pull people from doors and windows. But other rescuers were overcome by the gas and had to turn away. Firemen responded to the alarm within minutes, but they also had trouble getting inside. One fireman donned a mask and groped his way through the smoky curtain, then backed out a minute later. Can't make it, he said when he could breathe. It's killing. It's killing. There were figures on the roof, surrounded by swirls of orange mist, screaming for help. A fire commander ordered, up the ladders, up the ladders, get him from the top. Battalion Chief James Flynn made it to the roof, 
where an anguished doctor said people inside were being trampled to death. Flynn looked down through the broken skylight. Later, he would tell a reporter, I hope to never have to look at anything so horrifying again. Lord, help me from as far down the stairway as you could see. Bodies, bodies, and bodies, twisted arms and legs, screaming men and women, bodies and screams. The gas acted so quickly, one woman stood at a broken third floor window, preparing to jump into an open net that firefighters had stretched below her. But the amber cloud appeared over her shoulders, and she collapsed backward into the building. A survivor shared her story of how she was waiting in a room for x-ray results, pacing impatiently because it was taking so long. Then the explosions shattered the glass in the door to her room. She took a step to leave the room when a doctor and nurse fell through the open doorway, followed by the deadly smog. The woman said she saw a man crawling on the floor beneath the smoke and decided to follow his example. They squirmed toward an exterior door and escaped the building. Most of the dead, many of them disrobed because they were in the middle of various treatments when the gas killed them, lay in stairways or were trapped in front of elevators on the upper floors. Dr. Carl Hedwig, who worked at Maternity Hospital, heard of the explosion and raced to the outpatient center in search of his wife, Mildred. She worked in the dental department and was finishing up her last day there. The pair fell in love while attending Ohio State University's School of Medicine and were planning a future in Seattle. Mildred's co-workers had given her a farewell party the night before. Dr. Hedwig found Mildred in the morgue of a local hospital where she had been taken. Two of the guests who had been at her party lay next to her. In hindsight, it was a miracle that anyone escaped. And for many of those who did, it was only a brief reprieve. One man exited the building, and when medics tried to attend him, he brushed them aside, saying, I'm fine. The gas didn't get me. Go help the others. As soon as they turned from him, he collapsed. Paul Rocamora, an x-ray salesman from Texas, made it out of the front of the building and started helping medics who had turned the front lawn into a trauma center, sorting through the living and the dead as bodies were pulled from the Holocaust. A medic told him he'd better seek treatment himself. You don't know what that gas can do, the medic told him. He said he'd get help later. That night, he went to Mount Sinai and laughed as he said he was told to present himself for inspection. Ten minutes later, he was dead. Ben Jones was a 30-year-old football standout in college who went on to a professional career with the Canton Bulldogs, Chicago Bruins, and Cleveland Indians. He was at the clinic for a tonsil operation when the fire began. He made it to a window and crawled out and hung from the sill for 20 minutes waiting to be rescued. Once on the ground, he returned to the building to assist others being brought out. Afterward, he drove 150 miles to his home in Grove City, Pennsylvania, and there he died the next morning. Witnesses said later it was obvious who had been marked for death. The dying turned yellow, then green. 
People suffering from smoke inhalation were initially taken to a dozen area hospitals and facilities, but then by twos and threes they were transferred to the morgue. In all, 123 people would die, including 80 patients undergoing various outpatient treatments and 43 employees of the clinic. During the tragedy, Dr. George Cryle, co-founder of the clinic and a renowned surgeon who had invented the system of blood transfusion that was in use around the world, was working at the Cleveland Clinic's 183-bed hospital when the disaster struck. He was in surgery, and his staff kept him ignorant of it so he could remain focused on finishing his operation. After he learned of the disaster, he went to the outpatient center and called on his World War I experience to direct the work on the lawn, where medics were sorting through the dead and the dying. Among the mostly lifeless bodies, he saw a nurse he had served with in France on the front lines. After Cryo was assured the last body was out of the building, he went to the clinic's hospital to attend the victims being sent there. He was described in news reports as a calm and steady general, pacing the floor, still wearing his operating gown and cap, shouting out commands to his first responders that were bringing in the suffering, calling for resources, handing out treatment orders. He stopped a physician racing past him in the hall and asked, How's Dr. Locke? He was asking after Charles Locke, the Cleveland Clinic's brain specialist, who had swallowed some of the fumes. The doctor shouted back as he continued running, His pulse is pretty strong. I think he'll be all right. A few hours later, Dr. Locke was dead. That evening, a physician hurried up to Dr. Crowell, advising he go take a look at his friend and protege, Dr. John Phillips. Dr. Phillips was another of the clinic's founders and was able to leave the outpatient center on his own after the blast. He walked home to his apartment at Wade Park Manor, but the gas was already in his lungs, and his condition worsened with each hour. Dr. Cryle arranged for him to have a blood transfusion, a desperate last attempt to save his life, but it didn't work. Just after 9 p.m., Dr. Phillips took his last labored breath. Once the fire was out and the dangerous fumes gone, the community gathered around the building, the sweet and nauseous scent of burnt celluloid still lingering. Many of those who came to the clinic were from out of state, and their families were waiting for their return at local hotels when word of the terror reached them. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. 
Conflicted, a history podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Local families joined them, asking after loved ones who worked at the building or had appointments there. Others simply wept at the sight of the tall ladders surrounding the building at each window. They told reporters how they had seen people at every window begging for help, eager to jump, and then how that orange smoke appeared behind them, causing them to shield their mouths and fall from sight. The sight that seemed to chill onlookers the most, pools of yellow water left by fire hoses and yellow soot that smudged the insides of the windows, looked like so much blood and fingerprint evidence left behind by an unrepentant killer. The plane dealer pointed out the special horror of how an instrument of advanced science had turned against its users. As night descended, the crowd that was outside the hospital moved to the morgue, looking for parents, children, or siblings that could have been there or tucked away in any number of medical facilities that had taken in the victims. The morgue was overwhelmed, bodies lined up like matchsticks and filling every room in the garage. A witness said many of them carried the terrified look they wore when they died. Very few looked at peace. City Health Department nurses arrived to help and walked through the bodies, closing tortured but sightless eyes. Then they cleaned the faces of every victim to remove the yellow film that had killed them. The bodies needed to be identified. Surviving staff of the Cleveland Clinic arrived to point out friends, colleagues, and patients they knew. Three priests were let in, to walk the rows of the dead and anoint those they believed to be Catholic. Only then were family members brought in to make a final verification. The first to do so was Captain Young, a former police chief from Newburgh Heights, who acknowledged the body of his daughter Blanche, an assistant to Dr. George Cryle. The second family member to be guided through the morgue was a woman in a pink dress who was shown her sister, She shrieked loudly and hysterically and had to be carried away. The third was a gray-haired man who limped through each room of the morgue, shaking his head as he failed to find the woman he was seeking. When he asked to be taken to another room and was told that was all, he sighed thankfully. Thank God she isn't here, he said, then left. Back at the site of the fire, the investigation was underway, A fireman still outside the building was heard to comment, God, I can't get those screams out of my ears. So what caused the fire to begin with? There is no debate that the fumes came from the X-ray film. It was called nitrocellulose, and it was developed by the Eastman Kodak Company way back in the 1880s and almost immediately recognized for its use in the field of medicine but it was always known to be very unstable and extraordinarily flammable, so much so that fighting it with water made it worse because the reaction would cause even more deadly gas to be admitted. 
the efforts of firefighters to douse the flames had probably raised the death toll. The exact origin of the fire, however, is a mystery. Two theories have emerged. One is that the fire was caused by an exposed 100-watt light bulb in that storage room, and that it must have been so close to the very flammable nitrocellulose film that when it was left on, the heat from it ignited the film. Another theory pinned the origin to the exposed steam from the broken pipe, that the steam is what came into contact with a volatile film, causing it to decompose and begin emitting its poisonous cloud of gas. Whatever caused the X-ray film to burn, it would have started slowly. The defining moment was when the collection of film exploded from the heat, forcing those fumes into the duct system and carrying it to every room of every floor almost immediately. The swiftness with which this happened was obvious to investigators who entered the building after it was all over. They found rooms frozen in the middle of a workday, doctors and nurses dead at their desks, patients sitting in lobby room chairs, technicians still grasping charts or test tubes, metal equipment laid out and ready for use, a stenographer half-finished typing a letter. For others, death came slowly. Some seemed to have weathered the terrible event, but the gas remained inside their lungs doing its horrible work. Ernest Staub, a 34-year-old traffic cop, was hailed a hero. He entered the building again and again, dragging 21 victims outside. He returned home that night, but over the next several months, he collapsed repeatedly and had to be hospitalized and put on oxygen. Eventually, months later, his body had enough and he succumbed. Cuyahoga County Coroner A.J. Pierce held an inquest. Some irregularities were found. A fire door on the storage room was inoperable. There were no sprinklers or firefighting equipment in the highly flammable site. Staff was known to smoke in the basement. And, of course, there was that bare light bulb in the storage room hanging from an extension cord. But Pierce's investigation did not affix blame. The Cleveland Clinic was off the hook legally, since nobody could prove what started the fire, and the clinic's storage of the X-ray films was in keeping with the industry requirements at the time. Numerous lawsuits seeking millions of dollars were settled out of court for a mere $45,000. You might have guessed that such an unprecedented disaster would have a lasting impact, and you'd be right. What followed were significant changes to firefighting techniques, including the city of Cleveland issuing gas masks to its fire department and starting a municipal ambulance service. And medical facilities around the country, probably the world really, changed the standard not only for storing x-ray film, but for the handling of all sorts of flammable and dangerous material. As for the clinic, the event devastated the foundation, not only the building, but its reputation. A local philanthropist, Samuel Mather, helped with the former. He led a group of wealthy and prominent citizens in providing a facility so the outpatient clinic could continue its work. 
the temporary place opened just two days after the fire. The building where the tragedy took place still exists. It's still part of a huge Cleveland Clinic campus that has sprawled far beyond what its founders could possibly have envisioned. I suppose that's the answer to what happened to the foundation's reputation. It not only weathered this incident, but thrived. It is routinely rated one of the best medical facilities in the country. And as Steve pointed out, it's really rated at or near the top of any facility in all the world for its cardiac care. And as that YouTube documentary, Fascinating Horror, pointed out, the 1929 fire cost 123 lives, but the clinic spent the next century saving hundreds of thousands of lives with its revolutionary work. Like you said, that building is still there at 93rd and Euclid, and it is huge. I'm imagining, you know, the, the horror, the scene that happened on the on the front of it, you know, on the grass. Now, of course, the front of it now has a big giant circle in it, but I'm sure it was pretty large at that point. Have you been past that building on your bus, driving yeah, the bus? Yeah, we're driving the bus. We go all the way down Euclid and then go over to uh, the, uh, the VA. You'll never see that building the same way again. I, I, I won't. And across the street from it is uh, an educational building. And uh, when, during COVID, I know this has nothing to do with the story, but during COVID, the, uh, back uh, last year, you would see that building turned into, you'd see a bunch of beds just all over them, them preparing for something. And it never happened that I'd never seen anybody in those beds, but they were Yeah, they were was, ready. They were they ready. Were, you know, the Cleveland, I called it a campus, but it's like its own village. It really is. It really is. And the, the hotels that are just lying there, you know, because so many people come out of country to go to the Cleveland Clinic. Out of state. I can't even imagine what it must have been like when all the funerals started. Oh, yes. Three days after the fire, the first 36 victims were buried. Just 36 of 123. They had a lot to go. I mean, churches and funeral homes throughout the city and beyond were kept busy for days. Well, for the sake of all of us, I'm glad the Cleveland Clinic survived. It would have made a disaster even worse if it had ended the life of that incredible facility. Agreed. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Lisa Gain and the Rusty Silos are an American folk rock band from Columbus. And the song we're playing tonight, Run, is a brand new single off their upcoming EP. It was released just a couple of weeks ago. Lisa said she wrote the song with Dayton rap artist Tino and Cincinnati blues rocker Aaron Coburn during the shutdown. So you've got three of Ohio's major cities involved in this super collaboration. Last year, Lisa told me how hard it was for performers not to be able to perform during the pandemic. So I'm sure they are really excited to be back on the road. They've got shows planned for October the 6th at Three Oaks Vineyard in Granville, a November 6th show at South Park Tavern in Dayton, and a November 13th show at Big Room Bar in Columbus. There's more after that, so just search for Lisa Gain or Rusty Silos on Facebook, and you'll be able to keep up with them. Well, let's have another Listen to Run by Lisa Gain and the Rusty Silos. We'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. Not sure what makes me want to run.
My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.